hello. You're listening to Hoople Heads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Josh Rosenfield. Here with Soren Howe, we're talking about episode eight of season two, Childish Things, directed by Tim Van Patten, who, this is his only episode of Deadwood, but he has done a lot of episodes. He, he's a very, he's HBO's big guy. He's done a lot of The Sopranos, like great episodes of The Sopranos. Did a bunch of episodes of The Wire and Boardwalk Empire, and also the first two episodes of Game of Thrones ever. Yeah, I mean, so, that's, that's, that's his that's resume. Bad. And I have a, another fun fact about Tim Van Patten. Um, you ready for this? <laughs> Go for it. Um, Hit me. My mother worked with him at a, a camp for kids with cancer in New Jersey back in the day. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Um, every wow. time he directs anything on HBO, my mom's like, oh, it's Tim Van Patten. I know Tim Van Patten. Um, so yeah, she was back when she was in grad school ages ago. Um, wow. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Um, so take, take our, take Soren's opinions on this episode <laughs> with a grain of salt, obviously. He's yeah. Unrelatedly. I love this episode. I mean, I, I don't know Tim. I don't know Tim. So did I. I don't know him <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's just kind of, and I actually had forgotten until I saw this, I thought he was directing this episode and I was like, why does that name sound familiar? It's because when he was directing an episode of Game of Thrones, one of the early ones, um, my mom pointed it out and I was like, oh, would you look at that? So, um. Yeah, it's a fun little fact. Um, it has nothing to do with the episode. However, having said that, I actually really, really liked this episode. I thought it was... I also <laughs> really, really liked it. It's very... Not that I've disliked yeah. previous episodes, but especially after the past two, which have been really yeah. kind of depressing in a number of ways. This was And, nice and the other thing up. about this one, too, is even in the bits where, you know, there's, there's a little bit of quite depressing... Uh, uh, moments, you know, particularly doing the, the Chinese part of camp, as you probably um know what i'm talking about oh i'm this this whole ep- this this episode no. was not uplifting yeah yeah, yeah. but like, like but way. then but even then it corrected last week's weird like how does last week's plot fit into like this is like a direct continuation of two episodes ago and like skip that weird interlude where you know it's it's all about trying to figure out how to market you know chinese prostitutes that was like awful um yeah, no, this is a this this was a radical improvement in that department as well for me. Um, but yeah, anyway, so uh, do you want to do you want to intro the episode now? Yeah, so we start right in it, like no, no mm. establishing shot. It's just shot of Al and Seth in the gym having a discussion, and Al has uh, this is they've sort of been not uh, del- outwardly building to this, but this has sort of been a long time coming. Al is sitting him down and saying, "We need to." team up so that we can survive and they come to sort of a they come to some sort of understanding if not an explicit like agreement of what they're actually going to do seth agrees that he will you know uh help al for for his own sake and for the camp's sake uh of course the big thing that happens in this episode the the, the major thing is uh, tom nettle's <laughs> new bicycle um Really, sort of everything centers around this huge event. Tom has a new bicycle. It's called yep. the Bone Shaker. <laughs> and he says he can ride it through the street. And people say, oh, you can't you can't ride that through the street. And he says, yes, I can. It's quite a bold. And I mean, riding a bicycle is no uh, uh, trivial feat. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's it, to, to be able to just do it out of nowhere is, is pretty impressive. Especially one of those, like, that's, I, there's... There's a name for that type of bicycle. Pe- I don't a know. Penny the, farthing? The huge wheel in front. A penny farthing, that's right. And I can't imagine that's an easy bicycle to ride. 
um, just in terms of the weight differential, <laughs> keeping it balanced. Um, but he does it. He, he rides it across the boardwalk. He succeeds. And er- absolutely everyone in town comes out to watch because this is the Old West. And what mm-hmm. else are you going to do for entertainment besides <laughs> going to a uh, brothel? Uh, it's that or watch a guy ride a bicycle. That's pretty much it. Um, then, uh, well, there's, there's a loaded housing. There's, there's a lot of big things in this, uh, this episode. It is. It's a loaded episode. Uh, Mrs. Ringhausen goes to Al, who has basically uh, come to the decision. He's he's agreed to her terms, and he's going to have Dan sign a confession that he killed Alma's wife on her behalf. And then he's kind of vague on the details on this part, but he does say that Dan will escape custody, and then Alma will will uh, be punished. Right. And yeah. Speaking of Alma, Martha goes to see her, and, along with um, little William, and she's come with this suggestion that because the teacher who was hanging out with Merrick a couple episodes ago has, quote, f- mm-hmm. fled the town, um, which I thought was funny, she, she's suggesting that she should teach the, the camp's children. And th- this pretty quickly boils over into just the tension between them because, of course, Martha, you know, the, the lie agreed upon we talked about at the beginning of the season. Martha knows what, what went on between Seth and Alma, and Alma knows that she knows, and it cr- pretty quickly becomes hostile, and, and they do not part on good terms. Um... Other thing that happens, Jane, Jane is uh, vomiting in the on the boardwalk, and Charlotte comes up to her and suggests that she pay a visit to Joni, because you know they've both lost people and they they might. I think this is more for Jane's yes. benefit than Joni's. Just the idea of Jane having some companionship, um, but she does, and they they don't. I don't know if I could say they hit it off, but they have a pretty amicable conversation, and you get the sense that they will be. Uh, friendly in the future, and I'm happy, uh, curious and excited to see where yeah, that relationship I can't goes. That. And also, I should point out that Joni does say at some point that um, she refers to Jane as her friend when she's talking to Wolcott. Um, yes, so, exactly. And, so it's like, um, you know, just in case you were wondering how that meeting went. And then you also see Jane heading back to the Chesame without any prompting. Um, so, you know, yeah. clearly it was better than, you know, I think they probably both needed space, but I think there's an implication that they, that, it, that it went all right as a uh, first meeting. Yeah. Uh, another big thing, spe- uh, speaking of Alma, mm-hmm. Ellsworth goes to her and proposes that they get married. And Alma seems, you know, she's, she asks for some time to think about it, but she seems really, really pleased by his offer. She, she so not we'll not see where suggests that, that you know it's it, you know I suppose it could be a a problematic um, idea that Alma can't function without a man in her life. Uh, on one hand, on the other hand, she is kind of she just freaks out. She just can't handle what's happening, and Ellsworth going to talk to her somehow manages to calm her down a bit and figure out like what you know give her some sort of. Uh, a plan, you know, um, because she's like, she seems to be overwhelmed with the awkwardness of what's about to happen. Um, <laughs> cause Martha doesn't seem to have figured out that she's pregnant. Although it's unclear if she knows that, but, 
that's it's it's already tense and that's not even a thing yet so you know she's like yeah i don't even know how i'm gonna survive here if i'm and then ellsworth sort of comes out of nowhere to be you know at well of course at trixie's behest but um to to make things a bit better yeah um i lost my summary (laughs) anyway so this the conversation with martha and alma immediately that tension spills over into martha and seth and they have a very terse conversation. And then later on, um, Martha tells him, I don't want any more like shows of affection from you because clearly you have she's something like you have other obligations as other duties claim your attention, she says. And Seth says, well, not <laughs> he makes the great case. None since you got here, which, <laughs> you know, uh, it's true, is true. He's not lying but that is maybe not the best way to handle the situation. And Martha is of course, uh, absolutely furious at the idea that, you know, she, she's just so, uh, she's offended and, and she has every right exactly. to be. And again, a theme with this episode, they do not exactly. part on good yep. terms. Um, another little thing, Merrick is hanging out with the new telegraph operator. Who's just arrived in town. And I don't remember his name. Um, did you oh, write it down? Um, uh, oh, geez, what's his name? It's uh, Blazanov? Blazanov? Blazanov, yeah. Blazanov. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a Russian guy. With a great and mustache. He's been showing him around with a great mustache. It's I mean, this is a show yeah, with a lot true. of great mustaches. <laughs> um, so later on that evening, uh, Al stops by with Merrick and says, gives him this thing to print in the newspaper that just says, Seth won't confirm whether or not he's had discussions with uh, Montana right. about annexation, which is again, great, like great politician speak, great media manipulation speak. He just say that he would not confirm what would not confirm or deny if it was true. And right, everyone exactly. will think it's true. Um, I think there's a term for that uh, specific like move. I don't know. I, don't either, know what but it I, is, I could definitely see that because it is a recurring theme in, in our media. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the the telegraph Blasnoff walks in, and Al is upset with Merrick for not telling him because Al, as we discussed earlier this season, is not trustworthy of t- telegraphs because it enables people to send messages uh, privately without any possibility to intercept the content of them. And he sort of clumsily attempts to uh, bribe the teller. Like he se- he sets up the possibility of yeah. Well, Merrick seems operator. keeps trying to diffuse it and suggest no, you're not going to be. You know, is, this isn't going to be a thing. Uh, Blazanov seems amused by the whole situation and maybe even amenable to it. <laughs> unclear. Yeah. Um, then there's just two more things. Cochrane, who, again, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, is really uh, horrified by the way that the Chinese prostitutes are being treated and the conditions they're being kept in. Oh, then the uh, thing with Walcott, we'll get, oh, sorry, I completely forgot about that. That's huge. Mm. We'll get to that next. Uh, he, uh, he says he's furious with, with Sai and says, you know, please let me treat them. And Sai says no. And his reasoning is that it would be disrespectful to the, to the Chinese culture, which is disrespectful right. of women, which is, um, an incredible defense, really like yeah, top notch yep. racism, a plus racism. Um, and but then uh, Cochrane offers to do it for free, and Sai says, "Well, hey, if you want to." And again, when he does this later in the episode, he is just absolutely disgusted by by what he sees, and it's it's not really clear what 
he can do about it. Like he can offer his services as a physician, but he does, I think, feel kind of trapped by the degree to which the people who are enabling the the, the treatment of these women are so much more powerful. Yeah, and, than and he also, is. you know, there's that, you know, there's still that that moment where Lee, um, where he says, you know, do you speak any Chinese to Wolcott? Uh, and uh, Wolcott says, uh, no. Um, and then, uh, <coughs> whoops, sorry. Um, <clears throat> he says, you know, uh, well, you you need to tell your your whoever's looking over these people, and he gestures to Lee um, that this is you know unacceptable, basically, which means that Lee still managed to keep up the illusion that he can't speak English but like he definitely can mm-hmm. he just doesn't because he's not but he it seems to from what we've know it's that's the, all suggestions indicate that he is perfectly fluent in English and just chooses not to I think he speaks with Wolcott he just doesn't speak with anybody else um so yeah. you know so he could go to Lee ostensibly but it doesn't sound like that's going to happen so anyway um yeah, so the thing with Walcott is he's talking to... It, it's interesting to see him as part of a sort of side plot because we don't really... Typically when he is... In the episodes we've seen him, he is pretty central. To, so for him to have his own sort of side thing in for, an episode I thought was interesting. Oh, Walcott, yes. yes Walcott. Yes, yes. Uh, so he's talking to Moe's Manual, who is this real uh, mean-looking son of a gun who doesn't... He just seems yeah, angry all the time. Yeah, we're introduced to him in this and episode. Via like this uh, yeah. uh, letter writing, right by Wolcott to Hearst. Yes, it's so a really the, good scene. The actually. episode right after that conversation. Yeah, he's. Uh, oh, and we'll, we'll talk about that scene. It's not really part of the plot, but maybe yeah, we yeah, should, yeah. as soon as we're done, talk about that scene. Um, but anyway, he's offering Moe's to him and his brother, who have one of the last uh, claims he doesn't have control over two hundred thousand dollars if they'll both sell. But of course, they right. both have to agree to it. And uh, Moe's goes to his brother and Charlie, and Charlie says, well, maybe I don't want to sell, and Moe's shoots mm-hmm. him in the chest and kills him. And then later on, there's this great moment where, you know, Moe's is really, really uh, shaken by what he's done in this moment of anger. And he says, it's not easy to forget a fucking brother. And Wolcott says, money has properties in this regard, which if there was, a, you know, a better summation of what Wolcott is all about, I haven't heard it yet. Um and then the last thing that happens is Wolcott, after mm-hmm. right after that actually, goes down to the Chesame, and Joni has sort of sort of resigned herself. She says, "Do what you came here to do." And Wolcott, I think, very honestly says, "I don't know what I came which here is, to do." Which is which holds with what he did and, before. It wasn't clear that he was going to kill someone in the last the last time he did it. Right? He sort of just is like yeah. angry and decided to to take it out on you know, various people, but the this time as well, we didn't really have any indication if he was going to do that or who knows. Yeah. And I think, you know, we'll talk about this, but Wolcott is always a, strikes me as a very honest person. That's like true. he doesn't, he's not a, he's not a good person, but he she's very straightforward. Yeah, about which Jane points out shortly after. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Janie hits him in the head, smashes a, a bottle of bourbon over his head and, and tells him to get out, which he does. And Jane, I, I thought Jane was going to walk too. in and shoot him in the head. And I'm a little disappointed she didn't. Um, but she does see him and she recognizes who that he's the one who mm-hmm. killed Joni's friends. And um, the, the episode closes with this great exchange where uh, 
what does he say? Well, she asks like where he's if he's staying at the Grand Hotel, who runs that place, and he says a grotesque yep. named Farnham. Is, you, it, and she says like, well, yeah, I guess you aren't you, a liar. You lied yet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and that's that's childish things. Again, I thought this episode yeah, was fantastic. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you ain't lied so far, is what she said. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Uh, so, um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that that Hearst letter in, in just a second. But I just want to say, in this first scene with um, with Bullock, uh, two things I want to say about that with Bullock and Al. Um, two things I want to say about that is uh, one, it's not clear if in my understanding there's no North and South Dakota yet. So, I wonder if there's going to be some sort of build up to that. I don't know the history of the United States very well at all. So I apologize from, you know, I don't want to insult public schools, but it did, it, it just not, it did not do me well in terms of what happened with North and South Dakota. So um, I'm not sure if they're going to do some sort of uh, explanation for South Dakota forming its own sort of separate state from North Dakota. Um, if that's sort of what this is supposed to be the origins of, or if it's just because we know eventually what happens, right? Deadwood becomes part of South Dakota, or South Dakota becomes part of the United States, I yeah. suppose. Um, but as for how we get there historically, um, and I, I deeply apologize to all the people listening to this, cringing deeply at at, at this because it's just embarrassing. <laughs> but um, in any case, um, but at, and, and but the reason I, I bring this up as being relevant is that um, there is a significant. Uh, it will come up in the movie, right? The movie is takes place ten years or thirteen years later, and uh, I think all of that statehood and and becoming part of the United States and all the rest of it happened in short order, following this time period. So I think we will have to, have, you know, eventually it's going to be addressed in the context of the Deadwood story. But um, yeah, so it's it's fun when they're sort of seeing this because I think it'll actually be quite relevant when the uh, when the when the film comes up. And we're like, oh yeah, and all that all that stuff is actually really important. Um, and the other <laughs> thing I wanted to say is I I love this line when they're talking about um, Bullock. Um, I will not go out of my way to name specific politicians because I am not uh, interested in starting a political conversation with random commenters who have opinions about politics in this. However, yeah. I couldn't help but think. That somebody who uh, recently announced a candidacy for president came to mind when this line, when when uh, Al refers to uh, to Bullock and says, uh, and uh, when he's talking about why he's a good candidate for, to liaise with the government, he says he has a, a a trustworthy mug and a vague motive out there bugling the call. I was like, yeah. That's that's true, not just of the person <laughs> I'm thinking of, but of quite a few politicians. Um, it's like no real message. You don't yeah. really know where they're coming from, but damn it, I just like him, and I think that's uh, uh, he's. <laughs> I think Al has excellent political instincts, both here and also when he uses that oh, same yeah. exact vagueness to you know plant a story with uh, with Merrick. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, so yeah, I do want yeah, to really talk it. about this letter because this scene is. So it's it's a pretty it's interesting because it's a it's a pretty dry letter. He's basically just saying, you know, we've got almost all the claims except for the, you know, we're. I think he says something like we've we've surrounded the Alma, yep. the the Garrett claim. So we are. It sets we are the stage in. well. It really indicates how well this plan has worked. 
Yeah, and it and kind of in the background, like we didn't we don't see him going up to everyone and getting these claims until this episode, at, at which point he's already seems to have got most of them. It's just this very quiet. Well, I mean, we saw takeover. a couple of times, right? There was the those those folks who came to Psy to sell their claims, and there's an implication that there's been you know we're not seeing every single one, but there there has been oh that's true a few of those yeah we didn't realize how total it was I suppose until now, so it was a good um, a yeah good, exactly uh, exactly good to catch up the audience on that. But what's interesting is he's talking about basically how these claims are be- now being staffed by, um, what is he, he's Germans and Cornish, which by the way, the, the, <laughs> I had to Google what, uh, Cornish specifically, I've, I've heard it before, obviously, but what specifically that referred to. And the first autocomplete result is Cornish and Deadwood. <laughs> so I was not alone. I was not alone. And really it's great because this show is teaching me about all new types of racism that I could never oh, yeah. have even conceived yeah, yeah, yeah. of before. Just brand new racisms yep. all the time. Yep, yep. Um, and he says that they, you know, they're prone to stealing and we have, it's, it's, it's over. He's speaking over the scene of the, uh, it's brutal. It's really yeah. brutal. He's talking about how, you know, they hide them in their hair. So we have, we, as we wash them down, we wash the grease out. There's bins underneath to collect the gold that's coming out and someone shoving his hand up someone's ass because yep. he's hidden a gold nugget and the guy runs away and he shoots him in the back really yeah brutal brutal stuff the way they're treating these workers and it's consistent with what we know about Walcott. we obviously know from um oh uh, it was ellsworth a couple yeah, episodes talking, ago yeah that's exactly that what he, came to mind that he was responsible for the deaths of like 50 people on, on some claim or in, some, in a mining operation or something. So yeah, Walcott, not a guy who treats his, who treats his workers well, or even trusts his workers. Right. And there's at all. also this captain Turner who he says was invaluable to us since the Comstock, which implies the same actors are, are at play as in the massacre or whatever, the, the mistreatment, the murders at Comstock. Yeah. So uh, the Ellsworth was talking about, so it seems like, you know, the, the same old, the same old cast has come back, um, which is even yeah. more depressing. But yeah, and then you know, there's that one guy tries to. So they're trying to hide gold in their hair and stuff like that, and then they they all have to like shower naked out in the open, and it seems like they're all indentured servants or something. And one of them tries to run away and gets shot. Yeah, um, which is brutal. Um, but one one interesting thing that he does say is that you know he says something about it being sort of a delicate issue. The idea of bringing in Chinese laborers and making it a 24 hour, 24 seven operation. Um, I think that, and it also, it goes, I think it connects interestingly to the scene at the end of the episode when he's actually in the Chinese part of camp and he seems really unnerved around the Chinese prostitutes and kind of uh, disturbed, not certain, not disturbed by the way they're being treated, but just in general, a very kind of, he is he's, he's upset uneasy, to yeah. be around them and yeah and the, the just the suggestion that he could uh ship in a bunch of chinese people and make them work 24 hours a day like the, the idea that he could even consider that i think could speaks to how uh dehumanizing uh his mm. his view of them is definitely and how, how did you how did you feel about how this this was shot as like a sort of a it's not it's something that you generally see in this in this show with um, um, voiceover. Yeah, that that is you know I was I was gonna comment on that. You're right, and and generally not a lot on TV either. Is uh, you know we were talking about Star Trek a little yeah. bit before we started recording, but uh, 
That's something you see on oh, yeah. Star Trek big a time, lot, like all the time. But it's not a very prestige thing. I think it's maybe viewed as in, in terms of like a television aesthetic as a less prestigious thing to have someone talking over scenes of well, something especially else. As but it's used really effectively right? That's here. like the classic thing. You're like, my dearest love, and then like, you yeah. know, pictures of fields or memories of the, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but this is like the opposite of that. <laughs> the, the, there's another great television cliche in this episode that's used really well, which is the character walking to their friend's grave oh my God, and, have, yes, and talking to them. Yeah. Um, great scene, but is often a terrible scene. Yeah, all of we'll the grave scenes have been really good. I mean, they've done um, a few in the past, and they're always just really horrifyingly depressing. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I agree. And yeah, just to reiterate, um, it is it is good to see that somebody in the camp seems to care about the health of these uh, these incredibly unfortunate women. Um, but uh, it seems to be literally just Doc Cochran and no one else seems to care at all. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's just depressing. And like, I'm not sure what this storyline is building towards, but uh, it's been like a, it's been brought up more than there are like sub characters who have had less like. Uh, recurring presence in the show than um than these uh these women so yeah we'll see how uh we'll see how that plays out i i would love to see what mr Wu thinks about this because obviously he doesn't like lee he doesn't trust lee and i would really like to know what his perspective yeah, on like this is. are we gonna get any actual chinese dialogue in this <laughs> in the show that's subtitled that'd be in- that'd be interesting to what see thought. i would like to um, see that it is a it is a question I honestly don't even remember, um, but maybe <laughs> let's see. Um, so yeah, uh, so yeah. What did you? I mean, did you did you enjoy this uh, this centerpiece of the the bicycle? Um, <laughs> it's so good, and it's a great example. You know, we talked last. It was last week uh, with the Chinese prostitute. How that took it was sort of like yeah. the comedic subplot, and how it's you know. We found it a little tasteless. Um, I think this is a great example of a comedic subplot on this show done very right. There's always comedy on this show. Like, I don't think there's a single episode that's not yeah. a little funny. You know, Farnham, anytime Farnham shows up, and, and I didn't even mention what, the <laughs> yes. one time we see Farnham in this episode. We yeah, should talk great. about that, too, because, my God. Um, we, we can actually talk about it right after this, because it's right as this bicycle thing is happening. But it's just so, you know, Tom Nuttall is a very... He's a simple character. He, we haven't seen, we haven't seen him a lot this season. Um, you know, I didn't really remember him as a character, but he, the way his his boasts about his bicycle, are very. And by the way, I think one of the funniest things in this whole episode is when he's in his saloon, uh, boasting very proudly about his bicycle, and then in walks Merrick with Blashnov, and he says, "And this is the yeah. place of death." <laughs> That was a great moment. Um, yeah, and it just it's just it's just really funny. Like it's one of those things that you don't, you know, how people will say like, uh, I can't even think of an example, but like certain things in history that you don't really realize yeah. line up in certain ways. Like I would never have thought of the fact that bicycles were like a novel thing, but it in, makes in this time sense. period that would have never have occurred to me. Exactly. Yeah. You, like when. It, if someone had told me the year the bicycle was invented, I would have been like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But I would never have, like, put those puzzle pieces together of that being contemporaneous with the Wild West and this era of history. Um, so it's just amusing to be to see all these characters, like, 
being so thoroughly amused by and just I, a you know what I it's I absolutely love it as a as a device in the middle of it for a lot of reasons I think it's it's again it's new technology um, I know we don't think of bicycles as new technology but they are I mean it's new technology um, which is a, <laughs> yeah. again oh, yeah. with the telegraph another um, background phenomenon going on perhaps even more threatening in some ways than uh, maybe not the bicycle but you know, generally speaking than um, than Hearst and the Pinkertons. Um, or uh, the, the government, I suppose, um, or partially because it can enable those things, but also just because it's just this, it, it brings together the whole town and it's such a simple, but like charming, you know, thing and everyone's completely taken with it. And there's this amazing shot of Wolcott who, despite the fact that he's this, you know, horrible human being, even he's kind of amused by <laughs> the whole uh you know, bicycle yeah. ride, which you, I mean, it's a very intentional choice to put him in that, to give him that, that moment. But everyone in town is on that. And Al even, um, Al and the, the chief, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's, I told you, I told you it's a thing. There's another great scene that where Al, you know, you were talking last week about Al's kind of, uh, penchant for monologuing mm. to inanimate objects and Al actually explains he, himself. He does to Dan about exactly that in this episode. He does. And importantly, he also says, you know, uh, Dan cracks a, I don't know if it's supposed to be a joke or what, where he says, you know, does, uh, does he agree or something like that to, to the head or, or about referring to the head? And Al just gives him a look, which basically says, it's not that Al's having a conversation. He knows that the head is not animate. He's not giving, he's not imagining a conversation with this. And he's just monologuing, and it's just serving as a prop for him to do so. Um, so yeah, just to just so everyone's on the same page, he hasn't like completely lost his mind, um, which I think Dan was kind of probing for because he's like, you know, <laughs> he had a stroke, maybe he's not all there anymore. I don't know, um, but yeah, it's excellent. He he even airs out the box, which is which we never see inside. We never see inside, but the implication is it's not pretty, which one would imagine. Um, yeah. But yeah, and he, he takes him out to go and see the the whole bicycle uh, the situation, and even Al's rooting for the bicycle towards the end. Um, yeah, it's all quite uh, it's all quite charming in in its own weird, morbid way. Yeah, it is, and it's I, I you know I feel like I want to say a lot about it, but I don't really have a lot of words for it. It's just. It's just such a delightful <laughs> scene, and all made all the more made all the more delight. Like I was expecting this to be. I don't know. Have you seen I, Mad Men? There's a great scene in the in the middle of Mad Men that is that this reminded me of so much where they're showing off where they in the office showing off this new lawnmower that they've that someone's brought in. Like I don't even remember the context, but the scene is so vivid in my mind. <laughs> they they're showing off this lawnmower and everyone's very charmingly like, "Oh, look at this this piece of technology. This is incredible." And mm. since they're riding it, it's a riding mower. They're <laughs> riding it around the room and it runs it runs over someone's foot oh, and God. just chops it up and everyone in the room is splattered with blood and and gore. And it is such a great scene because it's like that's not what you Mad Men is a very well, it's about advertisers. Uh Yeah, it's it's about it's about people in in, you know, it's about smartly dressed rich people going about their business. It's not a show where you expect to see any 
blood whatsoever, much less something as ghoulish as a man's foot being chopped to pieces by a lawnmower, and for it to happen in the middle of the office, you know, all the more. It's a it's a great scene, and it's it's a funny scene, but it's mm. also a horrifying scene. And I was so expecting something <laughs> terrible to happen to Tom Nuttall. I like I thought he was gonna fall and off and break his neck. Now it's just he just really gets to did. the end, and he's like cheering, he, and that's it. He makes yeah. it. He. And he he does it, and everyone in town is watching and smiling, and it's just yeah, a delight. exactly, exactly. And you do sort of you are sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. But I think when you see Wolcott there, you kind of like, well, he was the one who was probably going to get up to mischief. So if he's also watching, then I suppose everyone's pretty much just enjoying this moment. And you know what? The other thing is that's the other thing about this is, of course, we don't see every single character in the scene, and Joni's still away, and all these other people are not actively present. But there is this. Um, because everyone, theoretically, whatever, ostensibly everyone is watching this event, there's no one there to get up to mischief. And so you can kind of just relax and not worry about what's going on behind the scenes with other characters because all the relevant players are mostly there. Except for Moe's, who in this exact moment... Well, that is true. That is the true. There's a little bit of mischief going on. There's a little bit of mischief going on. Um, <laughs> that, that's what I call a, a little, little bit, bit of murder. But uh, yeah, and then uh, so yeah, so what, so you like this uh, the scene with uh, Richardson, and uh, oh my god, <laughs> which by the way, by the way, not to bring down the moment, but I do want to just say that um, we forgot to mention this uh, when we were talking about uh, actors from the show who have unfortunately passed away, but Ralph Richardson, who who played Richardson, uh, actually died in in twenty fifteen at the age of sixty three. He wasn't even that old. Um, I think we talked about this. We might have talked um, about it already, yeah. but he's actually in this episode, so I figure you know we'll give him his due. But yeah, I know it's quite quite sad. Um, yeah. But he has a great moment here, and also another great moment. Just a quick shot of him holding the antlers still, because that's his thing. Yes. Oh my God, um, that was incredible. Because it's like his good luck charm <laughs> or something. It's not really clear what he uses it for, but he's he's hoping that the bicycle ride will go well. I guess. Um, but yes, no. There's this. You know, he saves he saves Farnham's life. Um, so first of all, he is, he is going in there to ask, to ask Farnham for permission to go and watch the bicycle. Instead of just going out. (laughs) Which, which in itself is very funny. And, and the other guy who works there, who I don't even remember who he is. I don't even know if he has a name. Basically saying, don't go in there. Yeah. He's, don't go in there. We, we, we're going to sneak out and watch it. But Richardson is very faithful to Farnham and, and goes in to ask him. And Farnham is, he has a toothache. And he had put a bit of like balm on a rag right. on his tooth and he was choking on it. And Richardson reaches into his throat and rips it out. And Farnham starts like hitting him around the head. He's like, <laughs> you put your hand yep. down my throat. And then he kicks him out and then a bunch of stuff falls on his head. Well, he it says, is the he most says, like slapstick he says, ridiculous. He my office again. And then stuff falls on his head because yeah. <laughs> it's a storage closet. It's not an office. Um, yeah. Yes. I mean, again, the mayor of the town, everyone, the mayor of the town. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I love that that's like this episode didn't have to yeah, include that but just the fact that that's the only time we see Farnham is it didn't so have good. to but you know what it did is it gave us a character who's not directly involved in the plotline of this episode and said look everybody in the town is excited about this bicycle even you know even Richardson and, and all these other characters so I think that that it was helpful in that regard. I mean, they could have used different characters for that purpose. They ended up using Richardson because it was, it was uh, uh, useful um, in context. But uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess 
so speaking of monologuing to not inanimate objects but non-human objects um ellsworth uh is talking to a ghost yes. um i think it's a goat was it a i dog? thought it was a dog i think oh, it's a dog maybe it's a dog hmm. well in any way I, I don't remember um <laughs> it was white and furry is the main point um and he's comparing marriage to a a boulder or his obligation to get married to alma or his potential obligation to get married to alma to a boulder which i thought was quite a an image um but uh he sort of resolves to to go through with it uh, as we see later on and um yeah so this is uh looks like it's 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 uh like i said it was it was they were foreshadowing you know, a significant change in the the um, relationship between these characters. Uh, what do you what do you think of uh, Ellsworth and Alma? I really like Ellsworth oh, is such gosh, a yes. sweet character. Like he is, like he just he's one of the few character like he's one of the few characters on this show who just you can tell he just wants to do right by people. He just wants to do the right thing, and not on the Seth way where Seth is very much like the long arm of justice and like very you know delivering. Uh, doing what needs to be done to make things right. Ellsworth is just, I want to stay out of people's way, but do what's right and, uh, and be nice and, right. and do the right thing. And that he's struggling with this so much because, you know, as we learn later in the episode, he's, he's lost his wife and child, um, which is really, it's like, yeah, really another, sad. yeah. Poor Ellsworth, right. <laughs> to quote, to quote random people. Yeah. Jeez. Um, yeah, man, the guy does not <laughs> have an easy life. And he saw a bunch of his coworkers get murdered, uh, at the Comstock. So yeah, yep. it's not great. Yeah, and it's just you could you get the sense like I, I I understand why he is so conflicted about this. I I just I I can I you and again great performance by the way. You just feel the way that he is so torn between wanting to do the right thing and what he feels like are his what he feels like emotionally is holding him back. Um, it's it's really like it's not a it's not a it's it's an un, it's a subtle performance and it's subtle and uh, not in the way that we usually talk about subtle performances where it's like um what's an example like Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea where he, his whole performance is just <laughs> like this, uh, and he and he wins best actor cuz that's yeah um, do, you have, do you have any feelings not a, about not a big fan of that film <laughs> not i have okay, some okay, but we okay. won't go into it um, this is a performance which is very, it's not showy, but you get such a strong, clear sense of, of, of who he is as a person and what, uh, and what's going on with him in a very, in a pretty yeah, short Weaver's scene. Great. He's, um, he's also, he, he, I think he like, he was like a witness or somebody that the uh, cops talked to in like, uh, a CSI or something like that, or some episode or something. I'm sure, I think I think everyone on this show was yeah, a guy that pretty much, but like even then, I, he just he has this. He, he's very good at that. He's very good at playing sort of a quite an an innocent seeming character, and he is and he, like not in a. I don't mean seeming like it turns out he's a bad guy. Just like he's very good at, at playing that sort of that sort of um, sort of guy, and I think he's really excellent. What he was in he was in Crimson Peak. What was are he? you kidding me? I didn't see Crimson Peak. He was. Carter Cushing? I don't remember who huh. that character is. But he seems like he was one of the lead. Oh, he's the dad. He's um, Mia oh, Wasikowska's dad. Wow. Yeah, he's a great actor. <laughs> You've decided that now. <laughs> I mean, I love Crimson Peak. 
I, I think I love Crimson Peak, but I remember watching that movie, and I I don't even know if I I think I might have thought he was someone else because I would. Not well, have he known looks who a he lot different now too. Like if you just look up a picture of Jim Beaver, but um, he's he's just Maybe, yeah. Oh, and he was on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul too. There you go. That's interesting. I don't remember who he is on that. I'm learning all about this guy today. <laughs> he just sort of melts in. He's like a character actor, right? He just sort of, who's this guy? <laughs> I have to look up who he um, plays. But anyway, yeah, no, he's great. And I think that it, yeah, it, it's, he really goes down, goes in with his head bowed. He's sort of like a, like an old dog or something. You know what I mean? Just sort of like, right? That's he the is. Vibe. That's such a good point. That's such a good comparison. Yeah. Um, And it's just, you know, he's so earnest. And I think that it, it really comes across and, I think Alma, while she's surprised, is genuinely pleased by the situation, as we mentioned. Um, but yeah, I mean, so when uh, when Martha, speaking of Alma, when Martha goes to see Alma, um, she goes in, I guess, I don't know why it was such an emergency that she had to go and speak to uh, Alma immediately in her house, uh, especially considering their history. But maybe she wanted to confront her. I don't know. It wasn't clear what the reason really was, but I think it actually is a great idea if Martha teaches the kids in camp. Like, I think that's actually a very good thing because they need a school teacher. Um, and uh, so, so I think all of that's quite viable. Why, why Alma had to like <laughs> turn it into this uh, sniping match is, uh, is another question, but it, um, like I said, it sort of sets the stage for when, when, uh, uh, Ellsworth comes in and diffuses the whole situation. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a good episode. This is a good episode for the women of Deadwood. They get a lot of scenes together. They get a lot of scenes. Um, they get a lot of scenes together. And with that, you know, we usually something I noted in in my notes. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Something I noted <laughs> in my notes is that a lot of the time, a lot of the times on this show, uh, we see women in this context of like performance. This is something that really interests interests me in general about like the medium and storytelling is the idea of performance and, and acting as someone that is some separate from your true self, whatever that means. Uh, and, and we, we see, you know, we see this so much with Martha specifically the, you know, we talked about this early in the season when she's first meeting with Seth, they are both having to play these roles right. of the husband and wife that they're both clearly not comfortable with. And this whole scene, when it begins, it is the two of them having to, play play these roles of the very d- dignified and you know well-mannered women who ha- are very polite and they know their manners and, and all that when of course there is this sort of seething bubbling tension that that eventually breaks out and it's just it's so and and this is i think what makes we'll get to jane and Joni later but i think what makes jane such an interesting character is that she is viewed as un womanly not because she acts like a man so much as because she doesn't act like a woman is supposed to act she is very much she is never performing she is like one of the one of the characters who is most true to herself on the show i think she is just always herself and no one else and people you know over the time will look at that and say well she's not acting like a woman should and that's interesting compared with Joni, who just you know Joni by the nature of her profession has to right. act a certain way and perform a certain way as a woman. So I liked the scene with um, Alma and, and Martha and the way that it, it boils over because it is this example for the first time with Martha and later really more in this scene with Seth later in the episode of these two women who are forced, even though there are no men in the room, they ha- they feel they have to interact right. a certain way and eventually like that just falls away because of 
the tension that they can't exactly deny. yeah and it's done it's 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 um illustrated really well well with this tea right this tea that's promised and then almond just loses it and just can't handle the situation and um and uh and can't how ha- and can't pretend like this is just going to be a conversation about school um and and uh and whatever martha allegedly wants to talk about um and uh yeah no i completely agree um i think regina carrado who who wrote this episode does a lot of really good work with all of the female characters in this um uh all, all the female characters uh, this this time around and also um i just found in general writing is extremely consistent in deadwood in my opinion right like episode to episode you don't go oh it's a new person writing this episode right you don't it's not like that but yeah if you're looking for it you can see differences right there's some episodes where it was a couple, an episode, a couple of episodes. Ago, I don't remember which one it was, but I was thinking to myself, some of the lines seemed kind of oh, anachronistic. Is the right word? Um, I mean, we we can we we should not in this episode necessarily, but I think it's worth talking about the anachronism of the language because this is a big thing with this show, right? I think we did. Um, I don't think we maybe we did early okay. on. I don't really remember. But yeah, I mean, a huge thing with this show is that just the amount that they swear is a huge anachronism. Like people would not have talked like that back then. And specifically these or more specifically, the way the swears that they use are contemporary. Right. Saying fuck, saying, you know, whatever. These are contemporary words. And what David Milch has basically said is, look, if they were using old time, if Al Swearingen was using old timey swears, it would sound ridiculous. You know, it would sound like if he was saying, yeah, gold, darn it. Like it would, it would sound comedic. And that's, or or maybe I'm saying this anyway, either or, uh, they would all sound like Yosemite Sam. Yes, I think he did say exactly that. That's right. And they would like that. We, we are, we view that type of, that manner of speaking as like a joke basically because it is we because it's so far removed from the way we speak english now we see it as uh comedic so but i don't think not but i don't think work. so i think <laughs> we have to be really clear here because i think there's two different things and this when i refer to anachronism what i'm referring to is phrases like i think there was so it was when uh commissioner jari first comes to camp whichever episode that is and in that episode there's a couple of scenes like at some point somebody says um something along the lines of sh- shit or get off the pot. And I was like, that is now you've pulled a phrase in that is just completely, there's no way, there's no way that's a thing that they said that maybe it is. I know someone's going to correct me, of course, but it was that and a couple other things in that. Whereas the swears, uh, you know, I think as you rightly point out, right, they changed it, but I think the idea was to capture the same vibe of the town so that those same, because if they had used the words that they actually used, it wouldn't have any meaning to us in the same context. We would be like, "This is kind of weird." Um, so they updated the language, but I think the the implication is that the swearing would have been quite commonplace. It just would have been swearing that we don't recognize. Yeah, no, that's what Which I mean. Is different it's, it than is, putting it's the specific words that they use. Right? These are two two different things. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's specifically the the cursing that I'm talking about, but. Um, and I don't even remember. Well, because we I was talking about how Corrado and the, but... the writing in this in this episode in particular. Um, I think it, so. I think her. So first of all, again, like she gives. I think she does some really cool work, and I think she does really good job writing in these stories about like all these little plots, right? These little moments with like with um, uh, you know, with the bicycle or with 
um, like giving giving that very brief moment uh, moment with Walcott seeing the whole the whole bicycle thing or um, having it's like almost like little parables like with with Joni and with Walcott and uh, Jane coming in it's little stories about friendship or tension as the case may be with uh, Martha and Alma um, she's really good at that and then there's also just incredibly like that episode I'm referring to from a, a little a, a little while back um, was very sort of uh, the conversations which was, was very dialogue centric, like back and forth. And if you remember, like the very first scene, this opens up Al and um, uh, uh, Seth. Well, Seth's not really talking, I suppose. Al is just laying out paragraphs of dialogue. Um, or later when he's talking about the situation with Miss Isringhausen. Um, or, uh, uh, like, there's just all these different points in the episode where there's just these huge walls of text, and you're kind of, like, blown away with how much dialogue is just, like, crammed into, like, 20 seconds of conversation. And that's not always the case in Deadwood. Like, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but usually it's... it's So it's very particular to this writer. So I think it's kind of cool being able to see, within the context of, like, nothing any of these characters said is out of character, but it is unique to the writer who is assigned to the episode, even though they're all sort of in the writing room of David Lynch. Yeah. And I mean, again, this is a very TV thing of like, we, with prestige television, we often talk about it in terms of the showrunner being the auteur. And we think of them being the creative voice behind every episode. And it is such a complicated conversation with TV in a way that it isn't for movies where you can say very definitively that a person, you know, maybe not very definitively because you never really know what goes on behind the scenes, but you can say with some certainty that the person who is credited with writing a movie is the person who wrote the movie in a way that you really, that's harder to do with TV because, you know, Regina Corrado is credited with writing this episode, but of course the way TV works is you have a writer's room with people breaking an episode and there's ideas coming from all over and there's one person who puts it together, but it is not, it's hard to say which particular line or which particular idea came from any one person, but, and certainly not just from David Milch because, you know, it, 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 it frustrates me often when we talk about TV and we talk about showrunners as auteurs because tv is you know collaborative in a way that film really isn't i think that's true although i will say that and someone will correct us on this because i know that we've been corrected on this in the past that there is quite <laughs> quite a sorry in advance or specific um arrangement that david milch had with the writer's room like it was a very particular relationship and i don't remember what that relationship was um but i think it's actually in the comments of an older episode uh, which I'm not going to be able to find now. Um, but basically, the way episodes were written were basically under his guidance. So, like, everything had to... Which is why it feels so coherent, but also, at the same time, obviously, writers had their independent, uh, had their independence. So, um, again, someone can correct me on this if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I, I think there, there was a... It, more so than on other shows, there was a particular relationship here between the writers and, and David Milch. Um, so, anyway, we can leave that aside for now because I don't have my all the facts in front of me, but, um, or somebody can feel free to leave a comment. Um, but I think it is interesting and I do, whatever, whatever the reality is, I can tell and tell you from the, from the viewer's angle, I definitely feel like I can tell different writers, um, from episode to episode again, because I'm looking for them, not because if I was just watching the show and I wasn't really paying much attention, I probably wouldn't pay much, you know, I wouldn't, I would ignore that. Um, but because I'm, you know, because we're talking about it every week, I'm, I'm able to analyze a little bit 
more and see that there's there's like little hallmarks that feel like much like the directors who don't change things dramatically, but there's little bits and pieces that feel um, uh, unique to that director. Um, so yeah, uh, what else is? Is there any? We've covered a lot of it. Feel like the I feel like we barely, barely covered, covered any of it. <laughs> We've talked for so long. Um, I mean, we haven't talked about Jane and Joey. Yeah, we, should. we should talk about that. Um, um, great, great scene. Great yeah. Scene. So, um, first of all, not to I don't want to uh, uh, foist any identities onto these characters, but I will say this: I have long suspected that Joni doesn't have a very much interest in men. Um at all that's been my strong inclination uh and uh i also don't think that jane does either um that seems to be the implication as well um so i think it's it's funny these two characters haven't crossed paths before i guess <laughs> you know in this ep- in this show that these because hmm. i think despite them being quite different in the same way that charlie and Joni are kind of a fun combination i also think that jane and Joni make a lot of sense uh as friends i'm not even implying that there's uh, any sort of like burgeoning romance or something like that. But I do think that they have this, to me, fairly obvious connection. So I'm glad to finally see them together. And I love this, again, this goes back to the, to the writing, the direct direction. This, uh, this scene where they meet each other, where, you know, Jane's at rock bottom. And we saw last episode, right? The two characters we talked about are being rock bottom are Joni and Jane, right? And then, of course, they end up finding each other, yeah. partially at Charlie's direction. Um, and I love how... Uh, Jane comes in and they have this this brief exchange and Jane basically assesses the situation as wow she's really at rock bottom and so am I so I should probably leave because <laughs> we're probably going to just suck each other into these this like black hole of depression um and then comes back and I just think that's such a like a fantastic simple little moment you know that connects the two of them and also it's true to Jane because remember she did the same thing you know she kind of failed at it but she tried to go after al um back in the season one uh for for um, mm-hmm. for targeting sophia so i i love that as a as a as the kind of person that jane is um as well as the relationship between jane and joey we talked about how jane is someone who doesn't perform and i think we also see this it's, it's speaking of another scene between two women in this episode when miss isringhausen goes to see alma and she is you know, one moment that kind of had me whooping and like freaking out is when Alma Alma goes to hit her and she grabs her, snatches yep. her wrist and says something like, who do you think I am that you can just hit me, that you can strike me? Yeah. Um, and Miss Isringhausen is, and we just to briefly touch on this, we don't really have to talk about it, but she does confirm that she's working for the Pinkertons in this episode, which we were unsure yes. of before. But Miss Isringhausen, again, is a woman very much like Jane who does not feel obligated to perform uh the what society expects of her as a woman she is not beholden to uh, other people's expectations and she does and what's right. interesting about her especially is that she she does perform for Alma early in the season she is very literally playing a role in order to you know accomplish her goal she she yes. that is her job that's what she does but her and she is because she's able to acknowledge that, I think she is she is able to drop the facade in a way that Alma uh, often finds herself unable to. I think I think Alma is the kind of person who really struggles with, you know, 
confronting who she really is as a person. And I think there's definitely some pain in terms of her, you know, past with drug abuse. There's some trauma that she maybe doesn't want to confront. Yeah, from her father. And I think maybe there's some comfort for Alma in in playing this role, that in doing what is expected of her as a woman, in a way that Mrs. Ringhausen doesn't, uh, has no bearing on the way she acts. She has no concern for it. And neither does Jane. And Jane, of course, is in a very, you know... <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to call I don't know if I can call Jane likable as a person like I don't know how much if I'd like to <laughs> if she's a kind of person you want to spend time with but as a character I think she's very likable um I, I really enjoy watching her and Mrs. Ringhausen on the other hand is very like is a dangerous person is a is a uh someone who makes you anxious to be around <laughs> but these are both right. they're they're two Isringhausen and Jane are in many ways two sides of the t- same coin in terms of women who really don't play the role that's expected of them. That's true, although I think that Isringhausen's different in that, as he said, she played that role, but what she did was she was being duplicitous, yeah. which is something you could never conceive of James. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, this is why I'm, they're, they're right. opposites. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and she's willing to do that in order to get, you know, to get what she needs, whereas, yeah, like like I said, so... so um, um, so yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a that's a cool comparison. I didn't really consider that. Um, and Alma doesn't know how to deal with it at all. Like she's just like, "What is happening?" <laughs> um, my former tutor is now actually a secret agent working for the Pinkertons. What? <laughs> um, and uh, she's kind of horrified by that whole situation. But it's true. And uh, she was completely taken in by this um, by this uh, this this uh, ruse. Um, I should also say I'm maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I do not really get why Al basically made a deal with Isringhausen. I thought she was saying he said to Alma that he wasn't going to do that, or maybe I'm misunderstanding what's going on. But I'm frankly confused. Yeah, well, the the scene with him and Dan I think cuts off suspiciously early. Okay. That's what I'll say. My. Because there's no My way he's going to make a deal with the Pinkertons. It's like, he's been talking about them yeah. in season one as people he hates and will never make a deal. He talks about them last episode as people yeah. he hates, right? So I think it is very clear that, like, he 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 has something else going on. And I think he calls, he says, you know, Dan is obviously very taken aback by the suggestion right. that he's about, to, he's about to take the fall for the murder, which he did commit, to be fair. In fairness, yes. <laughs> yeah. He's going to sign on to take the blame for a murder he actually committed. But I will say, I mean, it makes sense then why he wanted to talk to Al about this head thing because he's like, is he actually going to throw me under the bus? Because it seems like he's lost his mind. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I need to just make sure he's actually got, because I think he would have, you know, last season, if this same plot went down, he would have been like, yeah, no, I completely trust Al. But Al is, and again, I don't think we're supposed to believe that Al has lost it at all, but you can see why Dan might be a little bit suspicious considering the dude is talking to a head in a box. Yeah. Regularly. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I think definitely like we are meant to understand that there, he has some ulterior motive for going through with this plan. And I, I it is not clear to me at all what that could be. I just think we don't know enough, but I, I'm sure this will, this will come to light um, in the near future. Right. Exactly. Um, and it's, uh, I know we've, we've, we've alluded to it, but I, or we've, we've briefly, briefly described it. Um, but I just want to, uh, I think it's pretty much everything. Um, 
But that last scene where uh, Walcott shows up at the Chesame is so tense. Mm. It's such a tense scene. Did you think what did you think Joni was? I mean, I know you thought Jane would come in. Um, did you think that Joni was going to die? Because I was like, I've seen the show and I I, I know what happens. <laughs> and I was still like, she's going to die. This is going to be horrible. I thought, you know, it's it's it is it is curious this moment because, like I said, when he says. I don't know why I came here. I think he's being completely genuine. True. Yeah, yeah, very you true. know, Walcott is not a guy who lies. He manipulates, certainly, but he is always, you know, every word out of his mouth is completely straightforward, is exactly what he is exactly what he means. And so when he yeah, when he walks in there and says, I don't know why I came here, I think he is telling the truth consciously. I think unconsciously, you know, he does sort of know why he came there. This is after he's been upset he's you know this Mo's uh manual has been kind of yelling at him all day he is unnerved by the chinese people he around him which you know that's just racism but that is clearly affecting him very deeply and i yeah we don't see really his thought process at all obviously but when he the fact that after all of this after this very trying day from his perspective the place he goes to to the shizami to see joni um i think he part of him has to know what he's there to do. Like there's no other reason he would have, he would have gone there. What's what else could he possibly be looking for? But at the same time, yeah. But at the same time, I think he is in this moment, like, yeah, genuinely distraught and confused. Absolutely. And you know, I actually, while I, I, it, yeah, it would have been nice if uh, Jane had shown up and shot, uh, shot Wolcott. I liked, um, I also liked that Joni, who in the past has also done a similar thing where she just is like completely willing to defend herself and just um, gets herself out of the situation. Um, it was an impressive, uh, impressive moment for her. And she does exactly the right thing, right? She hits him in the head with the bottle. She goes into a room, locks the door, then takes a gun out. I was like, yep. well done. Um, and at that moment I was like, oh, okay, we can, we can relax. And then I was like, I was still like, is Jane going to kill him still though? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's very reasonable. Um, she she's she's walking toward him like pointing her gun at oh, him. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I love her gun. It's like a proper like she was a a scout, right? So it's like a like a sniper or something, or like some sort mm-hmm. of rifle. She's so just walking around with it. it's awesome. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's that's childish things. Yeah. Uh, oh, I lost next, again. I always close the tab. Next, as we get to next this week is uh, amalgamation and capital. Huh. Yeah, that seems very that seems very Wolcott to me. I think he was he might have used those exact words in this episode if if it's not literally he might as well have. It's about um uh amalgamation includes well so capital obviously could be Wolcott, but it's also um amalgamation being um I assume well it could be about corporations. It could also be about uh uh incorporation of a state. Oh yeah. Right? That was sort of my yeah, first, sure. first take on it. Um but I guess we'll, we'll find out next time. I guess we will. All right.